Hello, I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. The last few months have been all COVID all the time. That's included our day-to-day lives, the news cycle, and this show. But this week, we're going to take a break from all the pandemic talk and get back to our usual open-to-debate discussions to give you some new and different content. This episode was recorded prior to the pandemic, so please keep that in mind as you listen. Canadians like to tell themselves stories about the serene, progressive country they call home. In certain imaginations, Canada is immune to the social and political toxicity we find around the world, especially that which we find to our south. And yet a cursory glance at our past and our present tells another tale. Racial prejudice is embedded in Canadian minds and in Canadian institutions. Comparisons to jurisdiction in which that prejudice is more widespread or more pronounced does not absolve this country of our own racial biases and hatreds. What we need to do is confront the question, is Canada racist? I'm joined by Erica Eiffel, economist, writer, entrepreneur, and co-host of the podcast, Bad and Bitchy. Hi. Hello. How's it going? Good. Uh, I'm going to throw you right into this with the title question. So no footsies? Well, we we can, but if we're going to dismantle racial prejudice in Canada... Okay. We'll do it without the foreplay. Well, we just get to work is what I mean. (laughs) Go ahead. Go ahead. Is Canada racist? Is water wet? Is the sky blue? Is the earth round? Go on. Oh. Hey, speaking of which, uh, you know there was a flat earther who died because... I do. (laughs) Made Made his own rocket. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The Darwin Awards. We need those to be televised. Yeah. I I just regret that he didn't live to prove that the earth was flat. (laughs) So, yes. Canada is, you know, um, it's basically birthed and weaned on white settler colonialism, which is just another form of white supremacy. I've been told that that's a slur. Oh, I know. I know. Like, okay, boomer. It's like the N-word, David. (laughs) Don't you know? We're going to have to put the explicit notification on this episode (laughs) so that people can... We're going to earn that (laughs) E-rating. Well, look, if we're going to go for it, let's just go for it. Yeah. But, I mean, it's funny. So let's start with this settler thing. I've written about this just recently saying that, look... You're probably a settler if you're in Canada and non-Indigenous. Yep. Um, and the reaction from people was uh, vicious and visceral, which I understand because, you know, white people don't like being called anything but neutral. Well, they're just, just people, just people. David. Just default. <laughs> like, it's default the rest setting. of us who default have setting. the asterisks next to people. But this is where I want to start, though, is that you, when we ask the question, is Canada racist? We're not, saying, we're not asking, is every single Canadian who walks down Young Street or walks down the, the, through the Glebe in Ottawa or, or in Kitts in mm. Vancouver, in, you know, walking around shouting epithets or, or deliberately not hiring racialized folks, right? It's a, we're, we're asking whether or not our structures are oppressive yeah, and racially and, prejudiced. and race is systemic. It's a systemic issue. It's not – I mean, the way we've couched it, it's, it's as though it's an individual failing. And that puts a lot of onus on an individual 
who operates and is born and educated into a structure that is made to benefit white people over everybody else. Was, well, white men yeah. over everybody else, heterosexual white men over everybody else. Or everybody as we else call, is just a fraction. As we of call the them, white just male. people. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. People. Just, just. And so um, your pushback, because I saw that on Twitter, and, uh, you know, I've faced the same sort of, you know, backlash, even in supporting what you were yes. saying in your article. Yeah. Somebody came in and was like, well, I don't think that I, 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 I. As soon as you hear somebody say, I don't feel that way, or I don't think that, they're just operating on that individualism, individualistic basis and ignoring the fact that there is not one of us that doesn't need to sort of decolonize our our thought processes, right? Even like I had a conversation with um, an indigenous an indigenous woman recently, and we were just talking about how we need how we struggle to decolonize our own thoughts. I mean, I'd have to actively decolonize my anti-black thoughts, right? Because right. I grew up in this country. I was born here. I grew up here, and I know how important how the impression of a flesh-toned Laurentian pencil crayon feels. I know what that's like. By the way, if you guys haven't read uh, Desmond's Cold, The Skin We're In, I suggest you pick it one up. Yeah. The the best-selling nonfiction book in Canada. Best-selling nonfiction book in Canada. At least on the week uh, that we recorded this. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I, I, I have to say, I mean, I haven't read it yet. Uh, it is my March break reading. Oh, good. After I, I worked through some Chris Hedges and some Carl Polanyi. Oh, look at that. So you. I'm just getting into the mood. And I, well, let's talk about the Laurentian, the flesh colored Laurentian pencil cram. Cause we've been joking about white male being the default mm-hmm. and yet, and people say, well, I mean, come on now. That's not very fair. Flesh-colored uh, pencil crayons are a very particular color, aren't they? they uh, are they the color of your flesh? No. No, they're the color of my flesh, yes. aren't they? Yes, yes. Imagine that. Yes, imagine that. But this pervades all kinds of things. Right? We're yeah. talking fashion. We're talking... Yeah, everything. So uh, the fact is, is that um, what we are taught uh, as good and bad, good and evil, um, all of these binary things, because for white supremacy to actually function it needs an antagonist Mm -hmm. you know usually black and indigenous are antagonists to white supremacy so in order for black and indigenous people to sort of succeed in this type of 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 constraint in this sort of society they have to be more and more and more and more like the white supremacy ideal. That means maiden-like, like white women. It means um, whatever caricature we have for white men um, in control, successful. Um, tall. Tall, yeah. not too loud, right? Un- not aggressive, blah, 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 blah. So then the proximity to whiteness becomes its own value within these communities. And so um, that's why you see more light-skinned 
black people on TV mm-hmm. instead of dark skinned black people and Indian people and Asian people, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not, it's not, uh, I mean, I was thinking last night, people will, will, will have this white people will have this battle about who's more racist. Like, and, and you're just like, that's not the point. And that's not the right question because at the end of the day, (laughs) once the British came in, the die was cast, right? right. You know, the sun didn't set on the British Empire. What does that mean? It means that they were at the epicenter of power. And it's these power relationships that keep um, reinforcing the racial hierarchy. And quite literally, the empire was so large. Yeah. It encompassed a country or a place where it was day at all times, yeah. which leads you to believe that well, what happens if there was someone there already? <laughs> you, <laughs> like, know. I, you know, it's funny. I, I suspect people listening to this, some of some folks listening to this will have, will bristle a little bit. And yet I, I would say, challenge yourself to think about if you, especially if you're say a white man, how it is the case that the world just sort of seems calibrated to you. It, it, this is one of the, you talk about decolonizing your mind or purging your mind of, of racial prejudice. Yeah. Part of that starts, I think, at saying, gee, when I get up in the morning, when I walk outside, when I watch television, when I go to the shop, when I deal with the police, et cetera, et cetera, when I'm, when I'm in a job interview, everything seems to be sort of just okay. It seems calibrated to me. And, and, can't, and folks can't make the empathetic leap to think, well, what happens if I looked a little different? Yeah. Yeah. And so when we see these, these, these issues flare up in media, um, they are also uh, calibrated to look like an exception to the rule. So when, when, when um, the bank of Montreal in BC, in Vancouver handcuffed uh, a child and then called the police on them because they didn't believe. A child and, and their grandparent or something, wasn't it? Was yeah, it, it was a child and the grandparent because they didn't believe this indigen- these, these indigenous people had any money. Uh, that is, it's not, I wouldn't, say it's, I wouldn't say it's not the fault of the individual. I will say it's an expected outcome given the structure of this country. Yeah. And so then you you compare that to... Um, a six-year-old in Toronto, I think she was six, who was um, handcuffed because they were misbehaving in school and the, pol- and the school teachers called the police. And then you, you pivot down to the States in Miami or in Florida, sorry, where the same thing happened. If you, if you saw online this- I couldn't like, watch it. I, tw- yeah. 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 All- these three incidents are do not incur, occur in discrete methods. They're a continuum of a structure, and that structure has been built over time. So I think that before, uh, first of all, I also want to say if you, if anybody listening to this is taking anti bias training and they focus on the individual and not on the systemic issues and the structural issues, it's the wrong training. Well, well, let's pick up the structural thing because one of the pushbacks from people uh, will be, 
Well, I don't, I don't think that way, or I don't go out of my way to think that way, See, or I don't that, know any better. It's me, me, it's me, the me, 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 me. But how are, how is the racial prejudice embedded in systems? I mean, where, you know, we, we, you talk about not even being able to, for instance, go to a bank and open a bank account, or if you're, you know, you're walking down the street in Toronto and you're racialized and you get carded. We think that's just a Bloomberg, New York thing. Stop and frisk. We have uh, an analog here in Canada. Yeah, yeah, and as they do in Britain too. Right. I mean, so how do, when we t- when we talk about these things being embedded in structures, what is it that we're talking about? Um, it is well, it depends which which structure we're talking yeah, about. Yeah. But usually, it's in um, defense of the white majority's fear of um, the sort of barbarian at the gates, if you can think of it that way, right? So um, it is in the police force and, mm-hmm. and how the police force was created for um, slave patrols in the States and to move indigenous people violently off the land in Canada and slave patrols in Canada. And so from that beginning, right. And the fact that it was like, like what was it? The Northwestern mounted police, I believe it the was. Northwest. Yeah. Something Northwest, like that. I think. It w- that was formed um, after, you know, after the Irish, what the British formed for the Irish, right? To keep them in line. Yeah. And so once you have an institution that begins like that, that begins on the premise of race and racism and subjugation and violence, I'm not sure how you break out of that. Yeah. Well, I don't know. And so it's not surprising then to see years, 150 years later, give or take, you are more likely to be stopped. You're more likely to be charged. You're more likely to be incarcerated if you're racialized. We sort of say, how is it that, you know, the prison population, especially among indigenous folks, is disproportionate. And then that often becomes a bludgeon that people say, well, look, there's a problem. But we make that problem. But people use outcomes to prove their theories all the time and it's still BS. You say this as an economist, right? Yeah. Like you get get use an outcome to prove that your theory's right. Like that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. But people do it all the time. And, you know, the outcome... um, of a large indigenous well let's let's work backwards who are policed more yes right so if you are policed more you're more likely going to be caught for doing something wrong and if the system is that you are going to be um disproportionately punished, mm-hmm. which is also, there are many studies that I've found. I'm not, I'm not going to relitigate this, yeah, right? Yeah, the data's there. The data's there. Yeah. I assume that your listeners aren't all Twitter bots. And so. No, they're real people and they listen all the way through. They're yeah, fantastic. Yeah. They're lovely people. And hey, listeners. And um, so, so we already know that. So once we get to the sentencing, the punishment phase. Yeah. There's a reason why Indigenous people and Black people are disproportionately um, in prison. They're disproportionately targeted to be in prison. It's like saying you hire more police and the crime rate goes up. And you say, well, weird. We hired more cops and the crime rate yeah. went up. As if, well, perhaps they, having more police leads to more crimes being discovered. A good reason why correlation and causation yeah. aren't the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Now you sound like an economist. Yeah. 
It'll I, come out. It'll I, co- wait till I start talking about opportunity cost. <laughs> well, well, you know what? Let's let's talk about opportunity cost. So let's talk about structural uh, racism and outcomes in light of that. Are, are, it, it's surprising to me that people are surprised that when you decimate communities and you over-police communities and you over-incarcerate communities, that those communities can't build the capacities that you expect them to have. Imagine that. But the other thing, too, is... I have to say, do white people really know about community? Because there's this the television in, show. There, there's this individualism that is just so. I I find that the whole idea of existing in a community um, is very much becoming more and more uh, an immigrant and racialized experience, mm. and so uh, I. I'm not sure if we're even speaking the same language when we talk about communities. And, um, you know, when I think of communities, I think about Heron Gates, for example, who, by the way, are having trouble um, paying their legal fees to stay Mm. in their apartments are probably going to get kicked out at some point. So that's a little plug for them because why not? Yeah. Um, but this is a community of, of, of immigrants who babysat for each other, who lived in a certain area and would trade off, you know, tasks and stuff for each other. You know what I mean? Your kids come home at this time. You, you take care of them this way. My point is, is that communities can in a certain way police themselves in a certain way. We don't have to always police communities. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder, I would really, and I'm sure the studies out there, I'd really like to know how much, if, if the presence of police even increases crime. Sure. No. And, and I, uh, the community question I find fascinating because I have a critique of liberalism, which is I'm sort of hostile to liberalism in a lot of ways. And well, you know, all the kids are doing it these days, but you know, the, I think the individualism that liberalism encourages and underwrites mm-hmm. encourages an erosion of community. It does. And, and a focus on individualism. Yes. And I, I do, this is, you know, this is where I, my, my sort of socialism gets bound up with a sort of old school Burkean Tory communitarian sure. vision yeah. that, that community is the thing we miss the most. It is the fundamental thing we lack the most. And a lot of our pathologies, a lot of our anger, a lot of our depression, anxiety, and so on is probably an bound isolation. up in isolation and not having those communities. Yes. Yes. I totally believe that this is, this is part of the problem. The other thing too, is think about this, how many wide scale societal problems can we solve on an individual basis well none okay so we don't eat we're not even equipped to deal think about climate change Mm -hmm. if that's not a community response that's necessary i don't even know what is and oh yeah and and yet we are bombarded with you know what's her name um indigenous service carolyn bennett yes who got on who got on Twitter and was like, well, I'm going to turn down my, my, uh, heat, my heat and put on a sweater. And that's how I'm going to contribute to, to solving climate change. I was just like, what is that? That is just, you know what? That gets me upset. It doesn't work. It doesn't doesn't work. work. And it puts the onus 
on the individual to solve something that should be community and society based. Mm-hmm. And it's unfair. Yeah. Well, especially since uh, for a lot of Racism communities, that's not an option, thing. right? Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Uh, I grew up for a time in, I, I guess, what you call social housing. I'm trying to think of what, the, what we call yeah. it uh, in Peterborough in the 1980s and 1990s. And we lived in social housing at one point. And I remember, I don't think at the time I would have thought of us as poor. I don't think I would have known what that was. But there was a community there. And I remember being happy. And I've had times in my life where I uh, had very little by way of resources, but much by way of community and vice versa. And I have to tell you, I mean, it would be nice to have both. And, and now I have both. But it, given being forced to choose, I would choose community, so which indicates something that I think we, we often lose. Yeah, I would too. Because so, there's nothing like a community. There isn't. There's nothing. People who are there for you. Yeah. We can't do everything by ourselves. And I think liberalism has, has, has made this sort of, you know, this kind of like faux idea of success and what that looks like. and Of progress. Of progress, right. Yeah. Great. We've got more, but we're less happy. Yeah. We call it progress. Yeah. And I really do think is because along with that sort of progress came an erosion of community. And, you know, you can... It's it's honestly awful. So l- let's pick up this community point. I mean, say we say we then decide, okay, fine, this is community based. The solutions need to be community based. They need to be solidarity based across solidarity. communities. Solidarity. If we're going to Woo-woo! address racism, yes. how do we start to build solidarity across racial divides? Uh, I'll, I'll take the example of me writing about uh, calling. I mean, not exclusively, but white people settlers, not exclusively Mm -hmm. white people, but those were certainly the folks who were responding to me. Mm -hmm. And they were saying, well, this this undermines solidarity, this breaks apart solidarity. And I was sort of, my response was, well, I don't think you were a likely ally anyway. If you're an ally and you're getting your feelings into the situation where I don't believe that I'm a bad, I don't think, it's not about you. And that individualism that we just talked about is part of what's underwriting this me, 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 me outlook. Yeah. And if it is all about you, then you don't know how to live in a community. You do not know how to be an ally. You are no ally. And, you know, people, you know, people are show allyship until you step on their favorite. Okay. And this, this was definitely, I definitely saw that with liberal supporters after Trudeau and blackface. And so that is a very important, this, this is a watershed moment in Canadian political history, this blackface thing. Identity and race and so on and so forth is not just about skin tone. I'm not sure if I were, like, when I say I'm black, it's not just about skin tone. It's because my community recognizes me as one of theirs. And I get the sense that indigenous communities work similarly. Like, you have to be invited into the community as one of theirs. You can't, you don't just belong just because you have the same race. You know, not all skin folk is kin folk. 
right, is the right. saying, right? And you can't say I'm I'm one quarter, right? <laughs> you do you do a D, these these clowns I do a just, DNA test. Oh my and, god! I'm just like that doesn't. But everything we do is meant to absolve white people of their own racial guilt. Yeah. And I'm just tired. I'm tired. I like it's exhausting. And nobody should be have to be made to do that work. You are getting a good example of what that work looks like and how exhausting it is. Sure. And you but know, no, this isn't yeah. your first rodeo either. No, and I've been on the other side of it. You know, years ago, I, he won't remember this, but I will never forget it. I had an exchange with Desmond Cole on Twitter about pretty much this. Mm. And I was on the other side. Mm. And he was saying something to me that I just didn't understand. Mm-hmm. And it was basically as you just don't get this community. We don't you don't get our positionality. Yeah. And I was saying things like but you're alienating people. Right. And I wrote something in response. I shared it with a friend. I sat on it. I spiked it. And I never went back to it. And in the days and weeks and months and now years since then, I've thought a lot about that exchange and subsequent ones. And now I understand it. Mm-hmm. What didn't you understand then that you that you have come to understand now? That, that certain approaches to I've- activism – that certain words, that certain terms, that certain ways of of protesting, arguing, whatever it might be, are legitimate and essential expressions of of a community that is is seeking justice. Right. That it, and that if you are outside that community, it can be extraordinarily hard to understand. And I didn't get it. Mm. I, I don't. I didn't understand Black Lives Matter. I think mm-hmm. in in twenty whatever it was. 15, 16. And and I learned later listening and talking to people, but at the time I didn't understand it. I had that same knee-jerk reaction that people are now having to the word settler. So I understand why you might not get it. Mm -hmm. And and, and so now when I'm watching this play out in Canada vis-a-vis not just Black Lives Matter but also Indigenous folks and others, I'm trying to understand how you get to people like me from a few years ago mm. and build a movement that can induce structural change or whether or not that's even necessary. Or, or at some point you say like, you know what, you would do your thing. You're not welcome here. I, you know, so I'm glad we brought, brought up protesting because I, I, I feel some way about this, but I didn't want to write about it. <laughs> oh well, have at it. The this this media so called quote unquote debate about whether or not protests work is stupid. It's the stupidest conversation. Sorry, I feel like you guys talked about this with Elevate. I'm sorry. Last, well, the last episode we recorded was why protest, but Ew. you get you, no 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 no. We don't do censorship here. Sorry. We don't do censorship. Anyway, here. anyway I I. I think about it because I'm like, look at the 20, even the 20th century. Like at the end of the day, I mean, change only comes from really challenging the system. From agitation. From agitation, from discomfort, from what is, what is, so one of my favorite MLK quotes is a letter from a Birmingham jail where he talks about the white moderate and how the white moderate is more dangerous than the KKK member. Funny that never comes up these days when uh, 
when people are talking about it, when white centrists are talking about it. I know. They've forgotten that part of the war. They never knew. (laughs) Because I was just like, I put it in a piece recently because I want, because that is Canada. Canada is that white moderate, which prefers the comforts of an injustice rather than the discomfort of justice. Mm -hmm. Canadians don't want, I, I just, justice is not something that we talk about in this country. Yeah. We just assume it. And, um, protesting is what, what, Oh, another MLK quote that a riot is the language of the unheard. We've de-radicalized MLK, haven't we? I mean, the the those who mobilized him and said, "Yeah, we yeah. we we never forgot." No, 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 <laughs> no. I only speak for my community, <laughs> such as it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, yeah, defanged him and Rosa Parks because Rosa Parks was yeah freedom well, fighter. Uh, but this is what this is what one of my retorts in the last couple of days has been is that the things you are saying now, I think I'm talking about those who have responded with, I'm not a centrist. I'm not a settler. I was born here. Uh, 30 years from now, I think you'll look back on it and won't be proud of yourself. Yeah. Right. If we assume there's going to be some progress on justice for indigenous peoples in this country, I don't think a lot of people who are responding to the actions right now are going to look back on this period and be proud you of themselves. You got to decide on which part of history you want to be on. Yeah. I know which part I want to be on. I know which part I am on. And I don't have any question. There was no question as to, oh, which side are you going to take? It's not about that. It's about understanding where we came from, where we are, and why this is happening. And it seems to me that nobody in mainstream media wants to do that work. Public opinion about MLK and the civil rights movement uh, in the 1960s in the United States uh, wasn't on side, was it? No, it wasn't. What were they saying? They were, he's too, weren't they saying yeah, he, was too yeah. radical, he was too radical, protests don't work. Yeah, it's not going to build solidarity. You're alienating the people yes. who would, who would otherwise support you. Yeah. We've heard that before. I'm like, know. imagine that. It's like, see, the tactics never change. That's the thing. The tactics of white supremacy never change. So it's a matter of of recognizing those tactics and upsetting the status quo? Yeah, I mean, you know, what is the one thing that institutions hate the most? And that's change. Change, okay, and light. Ah. They hate exposure because they're all supposed to be operating uh, within some sort of, of cloak and dagger sort of. This is They just run. They just run. We just we just do our little part in the cog and that's it. We don't need to be identified. But damn straight they do. I mean, I think that I would I would be here for more like transparency when it comes to the people who are making the decisions because they need to own that. And that's the thing. Why is it that we don't expect responsibility from those in power or accountability. And a lot of this, a lot of what we're talking about, a lot of the sort of counter protests or whatever are people who have everything laid out for them in terms of whiteness. And they're upset because somebody is asking for equity Mm -hmm. and they're, they're like, (laughs) which is just, 
it's crazy to me. It's wild. But institutions hate being exposed. And so when you expose them, they, they're scared. Mm-hmm. And so occupying BC legislatures and offices is so on point for like, in my opinion, mm-hmm. aren't, aren't they, aren't they representing the people anyway? I, well, I, I think a lot of the, the direct action has been pretty tame, actually. It's been damn tame. I mean, compa- this yeah. is not, yeah. this is not like, okay. When I think of like, not so tame direct action, I think about Pinochet. Yeah. I think about those areas, yeah. right? Revolt. Yeah. People in the streets. Exactly. There's like no, there's like, I mean, to be fair, with the rail blockades, I know I'm jumping around. Um, To be fair, you got to ask yourself why it is that people occupying space close to a train just like are crippling a whole transportation system. Perhaps the tr- problem is the transportation system. Well, we can have a whole episode on that. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I mean, yeah. start thinking through these things, people. That's what I'm asking. But they chose those places for a reason, too, right? I mean, this well, is that's an well. Then they're getting their asses handed back to them. So good for them. Yeah, no, I, I can I, say ass, right? Yeah, of course. Okay. I know. And the thing <laughs> it's funny is one of the line, one of the things I've been saying is, is you, you, to sort of politicians and commentators who say this is just a bunch of privileged middle class people. I'm like, this is first of all. Uh, that's not true. Second of all, this is February in Canada. People aren't going out and camping on railroad tracks in minus 15, minus 20 degrees because it's a laugh. It's not pleasant. Um, even, even though I, I marched here not... distortion of the word privilege too. Well, okay. You know what? Let, let's take... I'm just picking up on on little threads here and chasing I know. So now I want, I want to chase I know. this one. I do the same. I want to chase this one, this privilege one, because... Okay. One of the areas where I struggle a little bit when thinking about these things. I feel like I read this from you just today. The intersectionality thing? No. Well, so is about the- you about you in your piece we're talking about how settler like how this colonialism is ongoing. Yeah. And how um it you know, you're of privilege as a settler. Like I'm of privilege. No, you said I'm of privilege. Yeah, I, I am. And but you hit the nail on the head. Which was, yes, I struggled. Yeah. It doesn't mean I didn't have privilege. Yeah. Because you struggled more than most, I would guess. Probably. Right? Yeah. Most in this, you know. Certainly in this, yeah, in this world in of, this of, of who's world listening. That we're and in, who's, yeah, yeah. Right? One of the best privileges for me, and one of the reasons I can do what I do, is because I kind of grew up around white people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... I speak their language (laughs) and, you know, they, you know, some of the terms I use, some of my references are very white. And so it kind of defangs me in a way. I'm less of the other. Next you're going to tell me you golf. Plus I have golfed once (laughs) and I hated it. Yeah. It's it's something. Oh my gosh. I'm just, but I saw, I did see, I'm like, you know, some beers and some wine out here is cool. Yeah, that's, like, that is the nice and, thing about. And then I'm like, I feel like I feel like one side of the golf course can have a barbecue and like a dance party, 
That's what they need to bring in for golf. I, I, I would go back to I'm playing. just saying. It's a space. No, but I didn't. No, you're right. I, I grew up in extraordinarily difficult circumstances. Mm-hmm. Single mother, a couple kids. She didn't get past high school. Later, she went back to school, sort of, to the Toronto School of Business. Uh, we didn't have much. In fact, I remember in the 90s, maybe early 2000s, we lived in Ontario. We had our hydro cut, some, whatever, the, during the winter, the heating was cut. Mm-hmm. And my mother called and said, I've got two kids here and we're freezing. What do I do? And the woman on the phone said to her, I suggest you invest in sweaters. What a bitch. Well, this is what I mean. So I, I, And yet I went to a very good school. I had very good role models. I had great friends. I had great teachers. I got loans to go to university. Mm-hmm. I, ha- I had access to books. I mean, I-, I struggled. I came from poverty. But I had the means to get out. I had the privilege to be able to get out from actually a fairly reasonable path. Mm-hmm. Not everybody Not statistically everybody. is likely to have yeah, that. Yeah. And, if, and if you are racialized, yeah. indigenous and so yeah. on. The probability of you being in my position and getting out is is different, isn't it? It's the proximity to whiteness. Huh. My proximity whiteness is being closer. things like like levers of power. Levers of power, the white social structure, all of that. You know. So for me, I feel quite comfortable. You know, walking wherever, being in certain spaces. I also grew up in Alberta, so, you know, I'm used to conservative spaces. Mm-hmm. I don't like them per se, <laughs> but the point is, is that I can function pretty well in them and charm some people and, you There's know, an emotional and, and tactical component. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's this, um, there's this knowledge base when you're... You're you speaking s- their language. Yeah, when you speak their language and they think that your proximity to them is close enough that you can be trusted. Mm. And that's what it comes down to, right? It's like, can we trust her to be one of us instead of one of them, as we think? So how do we approach someone who says, this, you know, I'm working class, I'm a working class white person. Uh, this, this all seems foreign to me because I have my own struggles. I mean, how do you build solidarity when someone confronts you with that? And that's what I struggle with. Mm. Because my response is always, if you are a white, a working class white person whose language I also speak because I lived you that. You do. It, I'm a class trader, but the other way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, when, when someone says that to me and says, I'm a working, you know, I'm working class, I'm trying to make it through the day, I'm not a settler, how dare you, I'm struggling too. My response to them is, you share a common enemy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> with these people but, uh, who are, I mean, these people. Yeah, <laughs> with, yeah I know with, what you know. You know what I'm mean. talking about. I, I, I totally <laughs> mean. I also said bitch on this podcast. Yeah. So there's that. <laughs> with, you know, with, with racialized folks, with indigenous folks, with that, who are struggling. Yeah. The 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 impulse is to divide or to see division when it should be to see opportunities for solidarity to say. Okay, why why is it like this for you? Why is it like it for me? And who do we blame and who do we push back against? I don't think that that is um, a foreign concept. I think it can be done. I all, But we also have to recognize that the history of labor struggles and labor movements is that the, me, the people with the means of production, the, the capitalists, the whoever, whatever you choose to call them, 
always put a wedge between the working class and the immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm saying immigrants as a historical right. way and, of course, freed blacks. So those wedges were on purpose. And the fact that they continue to exist, it's because they they keep being exploited. And I think once media became really, really about the shareholder and became really corporate, once, um, you know, the NDP here, labor in in England and the Democrats became really corporate, they lost that connection to the to the working class, the white working class, the, to the working class, because the working class is not only white people. It's made up more and more of immigrants, racialized people, that kind of thing. And so, so there's a history of that division, but there's also, hey, actually, do you remember when, okay, before the British election, do you remember that guy, 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 somebody, Matthews on Twitter and labor voices had this incredible, incredible um, piece of content, this, this ad with this guy named Guy Matthews, who's working class. And basically what he was saying was, look, I have no problems with um, the immigrants who say I have problems with, I have no problems with the rich. What I do have problems with is basically what all of us want. We want access to X, Y, and Z, mm. to education, healthcare, so on and so forth. I truly believe on a fundamental level, that's true. Yeah. However, once politicians and media come into the mix, media needs to make its money um, by driving attention. Clickbait. Clickbait. Politicians need to be politicians. And, you know, politics is for the 50% plus one now. And so once you have those two strong motivations coming into the mix, it's very easy to stir up discontent. Somehow we have flown through time. So we're coming towards the end, but I want to close out on a semi-charitable topic or question. Can we see anywhere some reason to be encouraged? Where are we making some progress on this? Well, I really am encouraged at like, okay, Gen X is questionable, but anybody (laughs) who's millennial and younger is just looking at this from a different lens. The world really is changing and the generational change due to the internet is friggin' incredible. It's incredible. And this idea, okay, so why is it that, that political action only takes place at the voting booth? Like, I feel like there's this there are like a few generations, Gen X and older, who like a met some white man came on my feed and came into my <laughs> mentions and was like, Well, if people don't vote, where's their civic duty? I'm like, there are other ways to become politically engaged besides voting. Including more meaningful ways. And meaning more meaningful. But voting is ways. the is, is the final act it's in a very It's the final yeah, act it's in the whatever la- you're It's the last doing. and the least thing exactly. you can do. Exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, well, what did you do? Well, I vote every time. And I'm like, what else do you do? (laughs) Crickets. Yes. Okay. So 
I mean, that and I don't believe in, I'm just going to put this out there, I don't believe people should be, like, like adhere, should adhere to any particular party. Sure. And I really do believe that the millennial vote is a much softer vote than than previous generations. Party should respect. have to work for it. They should work for yeah. it. Yeah. Like, all these people were like, I'm a such and such supporter. I'm like, no matter what, no matter, like, who they decide to pick as party leader, they could count on your vote? Really? Well, it becomes an identity. I mean, I understand people who work for parties. I understand people who are bound up in the, the, you, you, these things are organizations. I get that, right? But but uh, you know, people who who don't. I mean, who average day to day people who have a party identity. I find fascinating, and that worries me because once you've become, once you identify with a party, yeah. it becomes a lens. That yeah. identity is part of a lens, and now you're not thinking through the world in the way that exactly that's that's wrong. Exactly. So you think there's some hope in the next generation that looks at this and says. Nah, we're going to mess this up. Well, I think there's, I think, you know, you have, I I think you have a generation that's been exposed, Mm -hmm. exposed to, like, why is it that the most accurate reporting of this, what Sotowin issue has basically been on Twitter? In addition to... New media media organizations. Yes. In addition to new media. That... To me, I think I think Canadian traditional media really sh- is having a set of moments that are creating a watershed. Yeah, the they miss blackface, they miss the whole um, the RCMP memo or internal investigation about taking out Indigenous protesters with force. They miss that, and they miss this whole issue. That's been going on for over a year. So it's not like it's new. Mm -hmm. And so as we lose, if if we don't find what we're looking for there, we're going to go to Vice and we're going to go, and not to say that Vice isn't doing great, Vice and Ricochet and ABTN, and they're doing great work. They are, yeah. And better work than I've seen in mainstream media. Oh, on the so in an issue, especially at the start, it was Ricochet, it was the Narwhal, yeah. it was the the Tai. Yeah, it was, uh, they were on the ground. Yeah, they were yeah. On the ground. yeah, there was yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, it's like part of me, part of my sort of encouragement. I'm actually quite optimistic. Good. Quite part of my encouragement is that new media and the fact that we have this lens now, which is so exciting, right? It's exciting, and we see the bullshit, and we see the bullshit. I mean, this think yes. of think of the way that that Oka was covered, yes. and what we saw coming out of Oka, or even Ipperwash in ninety five. Gol- Can we just and- talk about a golf course? I don't. Don't you? Are started. you I even, like? I'm so upset right now. Yeah. That's why I was thinking. Oka. This is why I was thinking of golf. Okay. Right. <laughs> Because I was, cause yeah, I was talking yeah. about it today with somebody, and how yeah, how yeah. over a, over a graveyard. Yeah, over a grave. Okay, okay. First of all, golf courses shouldn't exist. They they are they are wretched for the climate. They are water sucks. If you want, let some old park. You want to go dig a hole in some wild land and go for it. Yeah. But the fact that these things exist. Yeah, and that they're maintained. Can you imagine the expense of maintenance? Oh, I, or the the and resource the climate, expense. Yeah, exactly. The resources, it's, it's, the land that could be used for oh, I don't know, affordable housing. Yeah, or we could return it to the people we stole it from. Oh, what? I don't want to be. Around, but I, but I, but the way we, <laughs> but now we see a six-year-old being handcuffed. Now we see RCMP 
pushing journalists around. We and we see it immediately because people are broadcasting yeah. it back to us. So I, I agree with you that there is some hope in the sense that yeah, there really is an ex- we we are being exposed mm-hmm. in real time mm-hmm. to all of this stuff and unedited, unedited. Yeah, and 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 would you know twenty years ago would Desmond Cole's book have been a bestseller? I, I don't know. I'm I, I'm not sure. Would I'm we have had sure Black either. Panther? become a smash right, hit would right. be, you know I, I don't i don't know if there's right. are we seeing and part of the of what i hope is a transformation is that capitalists the people who are making market decisions are looking and saying oh there's actually the old argument is well this will never work but it does work it works brilliantly it actually. works extraordinarily well yeah and does that open up new opportunities for new voices and new perspectives to come and take up space? If it opens up new gatekeepers, yes. Oh, that's such a great spot to end on because it's a cliffhanger. <laughs> You're going to have to have me back. I would love to. Well, that, that brings us to time. I, I could talk about this all day and, and we'll talk about it again sometime. But first of all, my thanks to you. Uh, Erica, this is fun. Bill. It was very, very nice to have you. Uh, Erica uh, is, as I mentioned, an economist, writer, entrepreneur, and co-host of uh, Bad and Bitchy. Yeah. And my thanks to Mira Ahmad, as always, who uh, I couldn't do this without. Who is, I mean, to be honest, who does all the real work. I just shuffle in here in the last five minutes and start talking. <laughs> I, I'm. I gotta say, I'm. I'm a B plus. <laughs> Mira's Mira's an A plus. And to everyone who listens all the way to the end, a special thank you to you and a challenge that if you are uh, somewhat like me in the ways that you might expect I'm thinking of, ask yourself how you're bound up in these systems and what you might do to make them more inclusive and productive for everyone. Thanks very much for listening and we'll talk to you again uh, in a couple of weeks. 